Welcome to Commission Ed, the Air Force Officer Podcast. Here we explore the training and development of America's leaders in the application of air power and the profession of arms. The views expressed are those of the hosts and do not reflect the official policy or position of the United States Air Force, Department of Defense, or the U.S. government. Welcome back to another episode of Commission Ed, the Air Force Officer Podcast. I'm Colin Slade. And I'm Reed Gann, and we're your hosts for Commission Ed. You know, Reed, we've had a number of interviews with pilots over the, the last year, and through many of those, it became clear to us that we needed to get someone to talk to us about the importance of the Air Force Weapons School. Yeah, totally agree. The more you're in the Air Force, the more you're going to start seeing those patches and realize there's something to it. And we definitely owe it to our audience to kind of give them a peek behind the curtain, so to speak. Yeah. So it, it was a great opportunity to do this interview with Wham, with Captain James Reasoner. He is a friend and a, a colleague of Slider, Captain Clark Heyman, that we interviewed a few months back. And Wham came highly recommended. So I was excited to meet him to do this interview and, and talk to him about the Air Force Weapons School. Wham is a F-15E Wizzo, flies regularly with Slider. He's got a wealth of experience. And if, if there is a typical path for a CISO to follow, this would kind of be it. You know, he went and did UPT, his B course, learning the F-15, became fully mission qualified, deployed, took part in operations in Iraq and Syria, came back and got selected for the weapons school. That's a kind of a typical path, wouldn't you say? Yeah, it seems to be that that's kind of the, I quote, ideal progression, if you will. They want some folks that that have been around and done a few things, but also not so old and crusty that they've gotten a whole bunch of bad habits. Yeah. So not that everyone should think that they need to follow that type of path to get to the weapons school, but it just gives us a pretty good idea of what it takes to get there. And very grateful for Wham taking the time to do this interview. As our audience will see, there's some really important lessons to be learned from the weapons school and the type of stuff that goes on there, as well as the product that the weapons school then later produces in the weapons officer. Excellent. Well, with that, why don't we turn it over to the interview? You know, this is a pretty awesome opportunity here, especially you know for me, because as a support officer, I honestly know nothing about the Air Force Weapons School and the weapons instructor course. Yeah, yeah. Happy to do it. I mean, your guys' show is awesome. So thanks for the invitation to come talk about it and happy to educate anybody else that wants to know anything about the weapons school. Yeah, that's awesome. Well, first of all, you know, it's early morning for both of us. For me here in Utah, it's just after seven and, you know, you're out there in Seymour Johnson. So a little bit later in the morning, but you haven't had anything to drink yet to get you softened up so you can tell me how you got your call saying. Yeah, that's you know, I've not started drinking yet. That is true. If you wouldn't mind though, you don't have to give the classified version, but just broad strokes, how did you get your call sign wham? Yeah, sure. So uh, when I showed up for my first operational assignment in England for like the first day I even went to work, I needed a haircut. So I went on base, got a haircut and the lady did 
quite a number uh, on my <laughs> uh, and so i showed up for like a first friday with the whole squadron being there and like the first comment like i get up and have to introduce myself and the first comment somebody makes is how messed up my haircut is so uh, that's the first half of it and then uh, as i spent my time there i guess people found some of my mannerisms a little weird so uh, <laughs> it stands for uh, weird hair and mannerisms is how i got wham now are, are most call signs an acronym is that usually how it works yeah we i mean yeah a lot of times because that lends itself to the story or it lends itself to like kind of doing a little bit better job of explaining of you know how you got the call sign you can kind of turn it into like a little bit of duality if you will i guess for the story that's awesome i mean leave it to the air force to take something as awesome as a call sign and turn it into an acronym right <laughs> yeah well james wham why don't you take a minute here and introduce yourself tell us where you're from uh and uh give us an idea of why you wanted to join the Air Force, how you got in, and we'll go from there. Cool. So I'm from uh, Noblesville, Indiana. It's a suburb of Indianapolis. I uh, lived there and grew up there uh, my whole life. Uh, I went to Purdue University uh, after that for school uh, and then went to OTS, uh, was my commissioning source. And I've never wanted to do anything other than fly in the Air Force. I remember that from being little, my grandpa flew in World War II, and I just remember him talking about it. He flew after that, and I've never wanted to do anything else. So it's been kind of a lifelong dream that I've been working towards. Luckily, got to do it. That's kind of how I got to where I am now. Cool. You say you went to Purdue, and then you went to OTS. So at what point did you make the decision that you wanted to fly for the Air Force? So really, I mean, I always knew I wanted to fly, and just hearing my grandpa's stories about the Air Force kind of led me down that path. So going into college, I knew I wanted nothing to do with going to the academy because I wanted to go to a real college and actually have <laughs> Right. <laughs> and then I found out that ROTC at Purdue does PT every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday at 5 a.m. And I also <laughs> wanted nothing to do with that. So uh, I figured I'd just have fun at school and then roll the bones and try to go to OTS and start uh, that whole process. Wow, man, you, you took a, a risky bet there and managed to be successful. So what was your secret? I just got lucky, to be perfectly honest. I mean, my OTS board, that rated board was, they were in like dire need of sizzles at that point. I mean, I think my my OTS class alone had over 100 sizzles in it. And they were taking anybody who even remotely qualified for it and they were picking them up for sizzle. Okay. And had you targeted CISO already or were you just open to any rated position as long as you could fly so i will never forget the day the recruiter called me because i put pilot number one and i did not remember even writing CISO down and he told me <laughs> uh, you've been selected for a CISO slot and i the exact words were out of my mouth were what is a CISO?" <laughs> right uh, and it kind of went from there <laughs> Yeah, I remember when I got my drop out of ROTC, I had put all over my dream sheet that I wanted to go into developmental engineering or acquisitions or contracting or something along those lines. Uh, I even put down that I was willing to do space and missiles, you know, the 13S, 13N, go sit in the silo because I wanted to be close to the ICBMs, I wanted to be close to NASA, that sort of thing. And then I got 
32 Echo Civil Engineer, and I was like, what in the world is that? And I get back to the detachment and start asking my cadre, what is this? And they're like, I don't know. <laughs> Nobody could tell me what Air Force Civil Engineers do for the Air Force. And I honestly didn't find out anything about what my job was going to be until I showed up day one at the squadron and they started explaining it to me. So hopefully you got a little bit more information ahead of your time at OTS and definitely before you showed up at Pensacola. Yeah, I did. I mean, I immediately jumped on Google and started trying to figure out what the heck I'm about to sign up for, but I couldn't be happier. Turned out really well so far. So, Yeah. So why is that? What is it about being a, a CISO and now a WIZO and now a weapons specialist in the F-15E? What is it that you enjoy about it and why you keep doing it? I mean, the flying aspect alone is awesome. And then the thing I really like about uh, the Strike Eagle is just what the two people in the jet can bring. I mean, it turns out that the pilot up front doing his or her, you know, left hand, right hand stuff flying the jet takes a lot of their brain power and having a second person in the jet to just kind of not necessarily make up for that, but can help, you know, do every other task in the jet other than fly is just insane. It's, it's really, really cool to see as I've gone throughout flying and gotten more experience of just how capable we are with two people in the jet. And I, I initially wanted to be the front seater of that. It turns out I was going to be the back seater and uh, I couldn't be happier doing that and really happy with my role and employing the jet. That's awesome. So what, what have some been uh, some highlights from your career that, so far? You know, any d deployments or missions or anything that comes to mind that really sells the the Wizzo mission to those that are listening to this show? Yeah. I mean, my first assignment was over at RAF Lake Heath in England, which is an awesome place to be a first lieutenant uh, and go rage around for three years. And uh, I'd say all the majority of my highlights from my career have been over there. So a bunch of really awesome TDYs and then standard, I got a six month deployment flying over Syria and Iraq uh, while I was there and actually uh, executing the mission. I mean, one, Definitely comes to mind of we were watching some guys on the ground go pick up a guy that they decided we needed uh, and we we're going to have a couple questions for and being the Wizzo man talking to the U.S. troops on the ground, coordinating other air assets and doing all that while the pilots flying kind of backing me up just really highlighted our role. I mean, I'm talking to guys on the ground, other jets, you know, back to the chaos at LED and just coordinating stuff while they fly the jet, which is pretty cool. That's awesome. Any really harrowing moments? You know, I mean, obviously you, you haven't had to deal with like enemy fighters, you know, coming at you for the intercept or anything like that. Yeah, I can think of two, one from the air and one from a ground perspective that uh, kind of fit into that category, I think. So while we were there, so you mentioned not necessarily enemy aircraft, but while we were there, uh, Russia was also in Syria and Russia was had dudes on the ground. Russia had jets flying. I mean, it was all friendly. I mean, nothing ever happened or anything like that, but it came to the point where we all learned like a couple sentences in Russian to talk to them over the radio. And, and I got within probably about a thousand feet of one, one time and kind of flew over the top of us. And as he did, he rolled upside down. And I was like, this dude's seen Top Gun. Like he just <laughs> moved from Top Gun. Yeah. So that was pretty cool. And then, like, I guess, I wouldn't say harrowing, but um, one comes to mind of 
there were U.S. troops on the ground one time and they got into a tick or troops in contact and that over the radio and got pulled from what we were doing. And, you know, I mean, they weren't, tick was probably a bit of a over-exaggeration of what was going on, but at least before and hearing that, before you get overhead of where they are, like that gets hair on the back of your neck standing up and wanting to go get over there right now to go help those dudes out. Yeah. I imagine that anytime you, you hear about friendlies or especially our, our own people, coming in contact with the enemy is going to make the hair on the back of your neck stand up. Your heart rate goes up and you're just thinking to yourself, Hey, I got to go help these guys out. Yep. That's the whole role. Why we were there was we were the support asset to help those guys out on the ground. So whatever they wanted, whenever they needed it was our job to go help them out. Yeah. Well, cool, man. Hey, let's use that to kind of shift gears towards the weapon school. Was your deployment before or after your time at the weapons school? Uh, it was before. Okay. So you were able to take that experience into the weapons instructor course and use the time that you spent there in combat, flying over the enemy, seeing our people taking shots from the enemy to better understand the, the information that were, they were presenting to you at the weapons school, right? Yeah, I mean, having a combat deployment definitely brings uh, some credibility to basically everything I'm trying to teach now as a weapons officer and having that background knowledge of actually tactically employing the jet uh, gives a lot of baseline knowledge for then building on top of that and everything and a lot of the stuff we did at the weapons school. Cool. Well, let's get into the discussion about the weapons school itself. Give us the reason that the weapon school exists, you know, the, the what, where, when, who, why, and how of the weapon school. What is it? Where is it? When do people go to it? Why would they go to it? And how would they use that information? Turn it over to you to educate us all on the, the Air Force Weapon School. Sure. So uh, it lives at beautiful Nellis Air Force Base in Vegas. And the Air Force Weapon School's mission is to basically take the top tier instructors from the Air Force, bring them together for six months, go through various amounts of academics, learning tactical expertise in your own platform, and then bring us all again back together to integrate. And the whole intent is to turn us into skilled and expert instructors in our own, not only our own platform to go out and then our job is to make more instructors but to also be the experts in the Air Force as far as integrating goes. So the flag goes up tomorrow and we put together, you know, whatever assets we have available, they're going to pull from weapons officers to mission plan that and be the experts on how do we take all of these assets, integrate them and make sure we get the mission done. And that is a very broad overview of what it is, but that's kind of in my mind, their kind of overarching goal of what they want out of us as graduates. When you say the integration of assets, what is an asset and what do you mean by integration? Sure. So the, the very last phase uh, at the weapons school before you graduate is called integration. So they bring in uh, just about every platform or every aircraft in the Air Force has a weapons school. So they all fly into Nellis and we all fly missions together. And it's not only um, just fighters. I mean, it's everything. It's tankers, cargo. RPAs, Intel basically runs the show uh, for some of those missions. There's space, cyber, just about every facet of employment is basically represented. And they just give us a, an overall problem, a tactical problem. And then these are your assets you have available. 
these are the roles they're going to fulfill. And then we basically mission plan and take those different pieces and fit them into the overall uh, tactical solution. Awesome. You know, when you say that every platform has, or every airframe or platform has weapon school instructors, I mean, it's, it's pretty easy to wrap my head around the F-15 having a weapons instructor or the F-35 or even the B-52 or the B-1, but it's a little bit harder for me to grasp why a KC-135 needs to have a weapons school instructor. So what's going on there? I mean, I, I can imagine in my mind the KC-135 dumping its gas and lighting it on fire and that that's how they contribute to the combat mission. But you know, obviously they're not going to do that very often. So what do these other more support type airframes stand to, to get from or benefit from in having representatives there at the weapons school? Sure. So for like a KC-135, we jokingly say they go to weapons school and teaches them how to turn right because everybody else can only turn left. But like realistically, what they leave and what they come out of that with is the ability to take 10, 12, 15 different tankers and 70 aircraft that need gas in whatever kind of time period to make the mission happen. And they plan out that whole flow of who's going where, when, how much gas, what happens when one of those tankers breaks, who do I prioritize for gas? Do I need to move them closer to the mission? Do I need to swap times between two different assets based on people falling out? I mean, they can basically take the whole AORs combat fuel plan and then divvy that out amongst the assets. Okay. And so that is kind of an example of the greater whole of the integration of assets that the KC-135 can't exist in a silo, that it has to take into consideration its mission and how it impacts the F-15 or the B-1 or the other support aircraft, you know, like the, the RJ or it, it sounds like what you all are trying to do there is get the pilots and other aviators and other people involved in the operational mission to think more broadly outside of their own particular mission and how they can, again, integrate and support the other aspects of the flying mission and supporting the, the air tasking order. Yeah, exactly. Like the, the whole intent of being a graduate and then the integration phase is I can't tell you exactly how that tanker pilot flies his jet or how he does that gas math, but I do know how to plan on where do I need him? When do I need him there? Who is priority for gas? And so I have a broad brush stroke of that asset. I can give them an overall intent if I was the mission commander and then say, dude, you're the expert. I just need you to go make that happen. But this is how I intend to use you as an asset for the overall mission. Okay. Very cool. So that kind of gives us the better understanding of why the, the weapon school exists in the first place is to get all of these aviators in the same room, talking to each other in the same language, breaking down those barriers and those silos so that we can broadly integrate everybody into the same flying mission. Yep. Yeah. That's basically, that has a really well put way of how we do the integration phase yeah, at the very end of 
the six month course. Okay. Well, you keep saying that it happens at the very end. We're going to need to hear what happens at the beginning, you know, what the day in the life at, at the weapon school is. But before we get to that, let's get a better understanding of who goes to the weapon school and when, like who are the people that we want to go to participate in this better understanding and integration of the air force assets? Sure. So um, you have to be an instructor. So I can really only speak to the strike Eagle timeline, but I have a feeling it's kind of similar for most other people, but it's usually a senior captain type kind of later on in their second assignment. They've already been an instructor for a little while, got some instructor time under their belt. And that's about the time frame of when you would apply, go to weapons school. Now, as far as the type of people we want to go, I mean, it's the big thing they're pushing there are critical thinkers. So that's the big thing they want out of weapons school is these are the people that when we have a problem, we look to weapons officers to, for them to critically think and figure out a solution. And then just overall, just motivated people that want to go and want to get better and want to make other people better because you go to weapons school for six months. It's about you all day, every day. And then as soon as you put that patch on and you leave, it is never, ever about you ever again. It's about everybody else and making them better. Their goal is when you leave as a weapons officer, you're humble, approachable, and credible. And those are basically the three tenets or values, if you will, of any person that both going in and coming out of the weapons school need to have. So you say that somebody has to be an instructor. And obviously that means that you're in a position within your squadron instructing new and upcoming pilots or WIZOs or navigators or whatever the, the case may be. So what is it that will set instructors apart and identify someone as being ideal for the weapons school? Yeah, so just the, like, kind of like you said, just an overall instructor ability. I mean, not all instructors are created equal. So somebody who is one of the better ones, whether that be just overall God-gifted ability or just whatever that may be. And then, you know, we as the weapons officers kind of help cultivate that next generation of weapons officers. So we look to more of the subjective side of the house of, can I see that guy being a weapons officer? Can I see him leading a squadron downrange to see, is he or her humble, approachable, incredible? And will they retain those qualities, you know, after weapons school? So it's a little bit of an art, a little bit of a science, but it's just overall type A driven, motivated type of people that want to go get better. Yeah. So for you personally, what was it that turned you on to going to the weapons school? At what point did you realize that that was something that you were interested in, that you might be successful at? What was your experience like? So for me, meeting my first weapons officer when uh, I was a little first lieutenant coming to the B course at Seymour Johnson, my first weapons officer was a WIZO and kind of mentored me through the B course. And then uh, when I went to England for my first assignment, he followed shortly thereafter, and he was the weapons officer of my then operational squadron. And things happened when we first got there that just showed me what it means to be a weapons officer, how much trust people put in you as a weapons officer, and just the overall responsibilities and roles. And he was one of my biggest mentors there and really turned me on to the idea. And just I saw him as an example of what I want to be, and part of that was being a weapons officer. Cool. You say that things happen. 
what were some of those things that kind of turned you on to it? Trying to think of the best way to say this. Things happened that people had to put trust in his mission planning ability to go do the mission. And he had been there for all of two weeks. I don't think even all the air crew even knew who he was, but they knew that he's a weapons officer. He's doing the mission planning and I know, and I trust in the fact that he's doing it correctly and I'll be set up for success. Okay. So that kind of harkens back to the credible piece of it that they didn't even know who he was, didn't know his name, had maybe had never flown with him before. And yet, because they understood what the weapon school mission was and the kind of person that comes out of the weapon school, they knew that they could trust him or her implicitly, right? Yeah, exactly. Awesome. And so what was your application process like? Did you have to talk to your squadron commander, get their buy off, talk to wing commander? How, how did that work for you? Yeah, so it comes out as uh, any other uh, official announcement does for the Air Force with a, a PSDM, which I just learned about not too long ago now as a flight <laughs> commander, which is great. What, what is a PSDM or PISDM? Well, I didn't learn very well because I know <laughs> the end of the message and that's about it. <laughs> I'm going to look it up real quick because I can't remember that, what it means either. Personnel Services Delivery Memorandum. Hey, there we go. So I wasn't even right with the one letter I thought I knew. <laughs> it's all good, man. You know, your credibility is about the F-15, not you know, the, the force support way of doing things. Yeah. So uh, we'll just give it a PSDM. Uh, that comes out. And then... It's just there's a formal application. You have to write a, an MFR of basically why you want to go, your career history, all that good stuff. And then, yeah, I talked to the squadron commander about it. Um, it goes up to basically the at every base, there's an OSK shop, which is the Wing Weapons and Tactics shop. And they basically put all those applications together. The weapons officers on the base get together, talk about all the applicants, and then them in conjuncture with squadron commanders, the ops group commander, and then finally the wing commander all is the rack and stack and kind of decide who off that base they're going to push to go to weapons school. So yes, mine included a meeting with the wing commander, which was a ton of fun as it always is. Uh, and then we just kind of just chatted about it. He's a weapons school graduate as well. I was going to ask, was your wing commander a weapons school grad? He is. Yep. Yeah, he was actually my OG, my ops group commander when I was in Lake and Heat, so I know him pretty well. So I had a conversation with him, and then all the bases submit all those applications, and a, a board convenes twice a year for the two classes, and they basically then decide who's going to go. Yeah, and that board is obviously going to see your paper records, not you specifically. And so just like everything else in the Air Force, it's your records that will get you selected for these types of programs, not you specifically. Yep. And yeah, the paper part of it is a huge piece. And then I can vouch for at least in the fighter community, there's still a little bit of who, you know, if you will, because this, the squad commanders from the weapons school go to that board and they have all the data from, you know, all the weapons officers at the bases talking how the rack and stack really went. You know, hey, maybe the wing commander's pushing for this guy, but the weapons officers from the base really think maybe this guy's or girl is maybe a little bit better. And 
there is a little bit of subjectivity to it and it's not necessarily all is your paperwork scrubbed and perfect. Okay. Is applying to the weapon school, like a one and done sort of thing, like you to try the one time and if you don't get picked up, you're done or can you try again later? You can apply multiple times. So I went on my second time. So I was an alternate for the 19 alpha class and then I got picked up for 19 Bravo. So you can apply until uh, you either get picked up or you decide, hey, maybe weapon school is not for me, um, but there's not a limit or anything like that. Okay. And so you say that you tried for the, the 19 Alpha, finally made it for 19 Bravo. That Those are kind of designators for the different class within a fiscal year, right? Yeah, exactly. Alpha is going to be the first class in that fiscal year, Bravo the second, so on down through the alphabet. How many you know, weapons instructor courses are there throughout a fiscal year? So there are just the two classes per year. So that's for the entirety of the weapons school. And then, so out of that, for the Strike Eagle, you get 12 graduates. So per class, there's three crews of, you know, a pilot and a wizard each. And so we, the 17th or the Strike Eagle Fighter Weapons School pumps out 12 graduates a year. Okay. And you say that's normal for the other instructor courses as well? Yeah, the numbers vary by different aircraft or the different, you know, Intel or ICBM or uh, what have you, but everybody only has two classes a year. The number of students in each class for, per platform kind of varies. Awesome. Very cool. All right. So, I mean, I have a much better understanding how the weapon school works, why it exists. Uh, so I, I hope that that is also true now for our audience. With all that understanding in mind, let's shift to you know, the, the kind of the day-to-day operations life there at the weapon school. You know, day one through day last, or somewhere in the middle, you know, pick a day, give us a, an idea of uh, what it's like being there uh, going through the weapons instructor course. Sure. So kind of start at the beginning. So you start off with what's called core one academics, which they bring every single student. I think we had about 130 together and we all get the same block of uh, just kind of basic academics. So it brings everybody on board to kind of the same baseline understanding takes, you know, like for the example earlier, KC-135 guy, and he gets a, a basic class on how air-to-air intercepts work. And it takes, you know, fighter guys like us, a basic class on nuclear missiles. And so we all are starting from the same baseline. Uh, for the other assets. Uh, So that lasts about six days. And then from there, everybody breaks off and you go for the next couple months and become a technical expert in your platform. So typical day of that is uh, wake up early. I usually woke up um, on a flying day an hour or two before my brief. I'd practice it in my lovely room at the Warrior Inn. And then, uh, going to work and we'd go brief the flight up, go fly between an hour and an hour and a half, depending on kind of what we were doing that day. And then depending on the type of mission, debrief was a little bit different. So at the beginning stages, it's just the two of us trying to become weapons officers and our two instructors debriefing. And then later phases, you add more and more people, more and more jets, all that kind of stuff. But debrief is what weapons school is all about. It's where all the learning happens and where you find out that every single word that comes out of your mouth while you're at weapons school is judged and will be debriefed if it was wrong. 
but I mean, that was like a kind of a general like day in the life of flying. And then that continues for um, about four months. And then they bring everybody back together. You do what's called core two academics, which is kind of a refresh on some of the security stuff, some of the assets, and then academics on what we're about to go do as we move into integration. And that's kind of what I was touching on earlier of now everybody's there, big mission and how we're going to go execute. Uh, and then those debriefs are, I mean, there's a couple hundred people in the room for those based on how many aircraft flew and what all we were doing out there. Yeah, it's interesting to me that you say that the all the learning happens in the debrief as opposed to the academic sessions prior to flying the mission or that it doesn't even happen while you're flying the mission. That it requires that very extensive word by word nitpicky debrief for you to to really parse out all of the lessons that need to be learned from what you should have picked up or could have picked up in the academics and then in then while you were flying so what is it about the debrief that causes or allows for all that learning so each flight has desired learning objectives to get out of that flight and while you're flying it, especially at the weapons school, you have to be really close to perfect to win. I mean, if you win whatever we're trying to do, then hopefully you pass that flight. And it's to the point there where you may be cognizant of the fact that you may have screwed something up while you're airborne, but you don't really have a whole lot of time to process for that and learn from that and then recognize the fact that when I see that situation the next time, I'm going to do this instead. So when we come back for the debrief, then, I mean, we have our uh, way to record all the screens in the jet, all the comm that we're hearing, all that stuff. And we just go through step by step of uh, what we were doing. And then based on our perception of what was going on, the decision we made based off of that, and then how we executed that decision, we basically just go through step by step. And we're all three of those correct. If not, what was incorrect? And then how do we fix that for next time? And it's really just recreating that situation or that thing you saw or that situation you were in recognizing that next time I need to do this instead to ensure success. Yeah. So then what is that step-by-step process? How do you, you in the debrief work through this information and what could someone like me, who's never going to go to the weapons school, you know, gain from that so that I can apply it in being an officer elsewhere. Sure. This is going to give me a little PTSD <laughs> for sure. <laughs> but the thing they kind of impress upon us is while you're watching whatever happened, first thing you do is identify an error has occurred as the instructor. And then uh, you basically prove to your students that that was an error. From there, you have to, uh, in a very simple way, uh, either ask questions is usually the easiest way to decide whether that was a perception error. So did you see the wrong picture, a decision error? Did you make the wrong decision based off the picture you saw or an execution error, which is you made the decision. You just can't fly the jet correctly or execute or use your sensors correctly. And based on one of those three errors, then you give an instructional fix and teach them that, Hey, next time, when you see this, I need you to do this instead, and this is why. And you basically prove the importance of why making that mistake 
affected you in a negative way. Okay. Can you say those three errors again? Yep. Perception, decision, and execution. Awesome. So that all is part of identifying it, improving it, whether it's a perception, decision, or execution error. And then the follow-on to that is providing the instruction to correct it. So it's not just, hey, you screwed up and this is how you screwed it up. But part of being the weapons officer is then providing the information that is actually going to correct the error as well. Yeah, exactly. It's all lies in providing that valid instruction to have the student get valid learning out of the debrief. So it's all about the, you figure out what that error was and then using whatever tool you want to provide that instruction. Then that's your job as not only an instructor, but a weapons officer is to achieve, to make sure everybody in the room gets valid learning. So everybody gets better. Okay. I mean, that seems pretty benign to me. Why, why would that give you PTSD to have to go through that again? Because a lot of times I would go through that process and I'd get done. I felt like King Kong and then the, the instructor would say, okay, and would look at me and go, that was all invalid. And here's why. <laughs> and I just spent the last 20 minutes sweating in front of them, you know, under the lights, doing the dance, trying to provide instruction and get to the end. And it was none of it was correct and they all thoroughly disagreed with everything i had just said <laughs> and so it's that process and like those steps like laid out is really like the overall just framework and what is just a baseline what we try to teach other instructors of how to tackle the debrief and that's really about the easiest way and it does seem benign it's just the the errors there and the missions you fly at weapons school are a lot of times very minute and it's just very difficult to pick out the error and provide that learning with, with just how the missions there are. I mean, everybody operates at such a high level that it's just very difficult to do. It's not like it is here teaching the B Corps students who are brand new to the jet who make it very obvious what the error was. Yeah, I mean, when you're there at the weapons school, working with other instructors, people who have already honed their craft to a high level. For example, like in your case, you already had a combat deployment under your belt. And so like you'd been there doing the operational mission. And so it's that much more difficult to, or that much more time consuming to pull out all of those perception, decision, and execution errors, and then providing the necessary instruction to someone who might already have the muscle memory, uh, have habits built up that may not necessarily be wrong, but could definitely be refined. It just takes that much more effort to get the rest of the juice out of the orange, if you will. Yeah. And that's a really good point. The other thing that makes it not benign is everything at weapons school is a timed event. I mean, you have a time limit on everything. You don't have five hours to figure out all the learning. I mean, you have 20 minutes or 15 minutes, depending on what kind of fight that you were doing or whatever. I mean, there is a time limit on everything and timing control and uh, that as a concept in weapon school is huge. So the pressure is on because you have to do all that in a quick and efficient manner to get all that learning out. Yeah. I mean, I can, I can grasp, you know, why it would be stressful to students that are going through the course. I just want to make sure that the audience understands what this experience is like and try and project themselves into it. 
so that they can gauge whether this is something that they're actually interested in. You know, that, that if maybe there's a, you know, an F-15 Wizzo out there listening to this right now and is, is contemplating putting in the, uh, an application to go to the weapons school and having this t- kind of discussion can you know, sway them one direction or, or the other. Yeah, and maybe my, I, for me, I think I was kind of unique that I never had any doubt. I wasn't really on the fence, but I would say if anybody's on the fence of whether or not you want to go, regardless of what you fly or what you do, I would go. I would put that application in and I would try to go because it is, it was the hardest thing I've ever done in my life without a doubt, but it is the most rewarding thing I've ever done. And it was awesome while I was there. It sucked, but it's awesome. (laughs) And just to, to be sure and to clarify, was it this debriefing process that was the hardest thing? Or was it the, uh, the academics or the flying? Or would you say it's just the combination of the whole that was really you know, testing you and challenging you? Yeah, it's, the academics really weren't too bad. I mean, we had... We had tests on them, but I mean, it was nothing too strenuous. It was really the, everything that goes along with flying. I mean, I'm the kind of person that puts a probably an unnecessary amount of pressure on myself to begin with. So that didn't help in conjunction with the pressure that's already on you from flying. I mean, for the briefs, like our, again, going back to timing, they have to be 65 minutes plus or minus one minute. So you're walking in the door with that amount of pressure and the first the first one you give is honestly 70 minutes worth of content. You just have to black out and just word vomit for 65 <laughs> and give that brief. And then you go out and fly and it's against, so I guess I didn't really mention it, but the instructors there are previous weapons school graduates. So to teach there, you have to have obviously been a weapons officer and they've been doing it for a while and flying against them. I mean, they are really, really good. So when you go out and fly against them, I mean, the pressure's on there to be almost perfect. And then when you come back, like, again, the debrief is probably the highest pressure because that's where you're expected to kind of shine as a weapons officer. And so, I mean, you're at the end of a 12 or 14 hour day still sweating under the lights and the pressure never lets up. Yeah. And so you're also highlighting here the difference between those that are students going through the weapons school obviously you are a cut above those that weren't selected and then there's another cut above that of those who graduate from the weapons school and then are selected to continue on as an instructor at the weapons school and are you uh, saying that those that are in that higher echelon of instructors they fly the aggressor missions there at the weapons school? So, yeah, I guess I can see why that was confusing. So our instructors still fly our jets. There's just some missions where we're flying against them. Um, There is a, at Nellis, they're fortunate enough to have an aggressor squadron that lives there. There's a a tenant unit there that flies F-16s, and we fly against them for a majority of our air-to-air missions. I mean, they are involved, and that's who we're fighting. Just F-16s? No F-15s or anything like that? So they have F-16s and then Draken, which is a civilian contractor that flies Red Air as well, flies a couple other little previously like military jets, A-4s and L-159s, but those are civilian contractors flying those jets and they supplement the the F-16s that fly aggressors. Okay, cool. 
So there's many opportunities available to officers within the, the broader context of Air Force Weapons School. It's not just showing up to be a student and go through the instructor course, but if you prove yourself and, and get the invite, there are additional things that you can be involved with there at the weapons school. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, obviously the, the most obvious one is going back and teaching there. And there are also, there are a ton of jobs throughout the Air Force that requires a W prefix, i.e. or somebody who has graduated from uh, weapons school. So that opens up a ton of doors being a graduate from there. And uh, you can basically do just about anything you want, really, within the Air Force that that requires a higher level type skill set. Okay. Yeah. So let's use that. Once you've finished the weapons instructor course, you've earned that W prefix on your AFSC that goes on your record and follows you uh, for the rest of your career. What then is life like back at the squadron, being the weapons officer, some of those other opportunities that you might pursue? What could people expect once they've graduated from the weapons school? Yeah, so getting back to your squadron, wherever that may be, you are now the chief instructor. So in most squadrons, it goes commander, DO, and then the weapons officer is kind of how that rank structure works, uh, regardless of the rank on the shoulder of that uh, weapons officer. So you are back and your job is your chief instructor. So like for me in the B course, this is one of the few opportunities where me as a captain have the ability to lead uh, other officers at this point, realistically. I mean, there's 60 instructors in our squadron and I'm the chief instructor. So uh, you're providing guidance and direction of how you want different phases of training to go, how you're working with maintenance on how you want the aircraft configured. You're working with the DO on your overall training plan. And the probably the weirdest thing, the thing that's still taking me a while to get used to is I mean, I have the commander or the DO who are both O5s coming to me asking me how we're going to do stuff, which is a little off-putting still looking over at a lieutenant colonel and saying, sir, this is the way we're going to do something. And that still feels a little bit uh, weird. And then I think the other thing that is tough to get used to is coming back and then you still have to abide by that humble, approachable, incredible now that you're back at the squadron and the credibility takes care of itself. You got the patch on your shoulder. That's, that's the easy part. It's the humility and then remaining approachable to help teach everyone that uh, is the, probably the more difficult piece that you got to work on every day. Yeah. I mean, doesn't the, the weapon school just like beat it into you, you beat the humility into you and the, don't they provide in courses on approachability on empathy and professional courses on active listening? Don't, don't they provide all that? Yeah, if they do, I think I might have been sick that day. I mean, they definitely, they provide plenty of opportunities for you to feel humble. That is for sure. I mean, you show up thinking you're the baddest dude around and that attitude gets fixed real quick. Yeah. <laughs> so there at the squadron, you, you say that as the weapons officer, you are the chief instructor. Are, is there only ever one weapons officer within the squadron at a time or can there be more than one? So at least in the Strike Eagle and in the operational units, there's usually two. So they usually strive to have a pilot and a WIZO weapons officer each. The FTU, the training squadron that I'm in, 
there's really no need for two. So we just have just a singular weapons officer for the PFTU. Okay. So you as a 12 Foxtrot with the W prefix are able to then provide instruction to the pilots as well as the other Wizos? Yeah, absolutely. That's one of the, the beauties of the instructor course for the Strike Eagle is I know and learn enough about what the front seater is doing to provide instruction for you know the student pilot who is whatever flying whatever mission uh, it may be. So even though I don't sit in that seat, I can still provide instruction for what they're doing up there, uh, regardless of the type of mission. And then same for the instructor pilots in the squadron. They they get a little bit of experience of flying in the back seat and can do the same for the student wizos and provide instruction on what's going on in the back there. Okay, cool. All right, then what are some of the other things that the W prefix might help you to get involved with as you move through the Air Force? It really is another opportunity to work with a bunch of different agencies is the thing that I found before going, I never worked with maintenance. I never worked with Intel this much. I mean, I'm coordinating with maintenance on, you know, our monthly schedule, how we want the jets configured, different meetings with them, meeting with different weapons officers across the base to kind of discuss stuff. And then working with Intel has been the other piece that I don't necessarily, I didn't really do as much beforehand. And now as the the patch, like we work with them to help develop training plans and scenarios and kind of work as a team for some of that. Okay. And then beyond what you do there at the squadron or across the base, as you move on to your next assignment, as you promote up, are you then going to work within A3 at the Pentagon? Can you expect that it's pretty easy now to make 05, 06? What is the trajectory of a weapons school officer after they graduate from the weapons school and move on in their career? Yeah, so I think the A3 piece that you brought up is definitely a good thing to bring up. I mean, that opens a lot of doors there to go work in weapons and tactics, you know, for the overarching Air Force. There's plenty of doors with that. I'd like to think that with the time and money the Air Force invested in me, that ideally this makes me a little bit easier to promote. Yeah, that'd be great. But I think the wrong way to look at it would be it's your free pass to an 05. I mean, I don't think that's necessarily true. Does it open doors? Does it make you more promotable? Does the Air Force look positively on it? Yes, I think so. But at the end of the day, you still have to be a good officer, in my opinion, to continue to promote. Uh, and it's not just a free pass that now you get to just slack off and well, I'm a patch, so I'll be an 05 and I don't have to worry about it. That's That's not how things work. Okay. And then... Maybe you can clear this up for me. I've heard in the past that being a graduate of the weapons school really focuses you in on the tactical level stuff, and it's harder for you to then break out of that and do that kind of A3 level headquarters, Air Force staff, more strategic planning. Is there some truth to that? If yes, why is that? If it's not true, what is it that is persisting this rumor that I've heard on on a few occasions? Yeah, I think initially, yeah, you are 100% at the tactical level. I mean, that is basically your scope as your tier one assignment as a weapons officer. I mean, that is basically where you're living. I think for us, that's probably like our comfortable place is critically thinking on that level. And then that really continues until ideally we're 
you know, awarded the chance to go to school, uh, you know, as a major and continue PME. And I think at that point, then take that ability to critically think at that tactical level and open up that aperture. And now, dude, I need you to use those same skills. But as you progress through the ranks, your weapons officer, I expect you to do that on a much larger scale and on a bigger scope. Yeah. And, and still utilizing that same process of identifying the error. Is it a perception decision or execution error, right? Proving it, albeit tactfully, we don't want to, you know, uh, recreate the PTSD that you're suffering from in our subordinates, right? And providing instruction, but now at that strategic level, not the tactical level, so that the Air Force can continue to improve and innovate, right? Yeah, I mean, I think even as you move to that strategic level, the the overarching assumption is you're a weapons school graduate, here's a problem, give it to a weapons officer, and they'll critically think and then come up with a solution for that. And that's just the overall basic understanding of what we provide and what we bring, whether that's at a tactical or a strategic level is we have been trained in that six month course to critically think and take a problem and provide a solution given the assets that we have. Very cool. Yeah. So there is benefit to the Air Force to take you all out of your weapons instructor course, out of the weapons school, out of the the squadron where you've been serving as the weapons officer and spreading you around into the different organizations so that you can use that skill set, use that ability to critically think and improve other Air Force processes that may or may not necessarily deal with your airframe and the tactics that you employ in the operational mission. Yeah, I mean, I was as a captain, I'm not there yet, but yeah, I'd like to think that's what the Air Force has in mind when they're doing those types of things. And I think just knowing what I do know about what we bring to the fight and what we bring to the table, I think uh, that, yeah, regardless of what position we're in uh, strategically or whatever that may be at the Pentagon or school or a different branch, whatever, we bring those same just baseline skill sets and just help propagate that as well as, again, learning from others and then bringing that back as we do come back to the jet, come back to, you know, uh, command a squadron or whatever and taking that learning from others and applying that. Awesome. Yeah, it sounds like a winning situation to me to to have weapon school graduates in multiple areas of the Air Force. There are lots of ways that the Air Force can improve and benefit from your knowledge. So on that note, you know, what are some things that maybe we need to revisit from our discussion here or some other stuff that you think we could benefit from? Some, I guess, best practices that people can uh, get involved with either in preparation to go to the weapons school or again, people like me who just because of my FSE is not eligible for the weapons school, but there are still some information, some skills that you have developed that critical thinking, that problem solving. What are some best practices more broadly that we can learn from you and the weapons school and apply elsewhere in the Air Force? I think the probably one of the biggest things I learned in coming out is just asking questions and basically challenging assumptions of things that the Air Force gives me. So I'm now significantly less inclined to just take direction and say, okay, and not critically think about it and think, hey, is there maybe a better way to do this? Or, hey, 
can I potentially work with this support agency a little bit different to reduce both of our workloads? Or, hey, can we maybe do this process a little bit different uh, to make it more effective on our end? And taking just the status quo and accepting that is, I think, the biggest thing that kind of would apply in a broader sense of whether or not you fly an aircraft or you do whatever other job in the Air Force that just critically thinking about is this necessarily the right way to do this? And can we do something a little bit different? I think applies across the whole of the Air Force. Yeah. So you say ask questions. What questions should we be asking? I mean, like, why do we do it this way? I think the, especially at Seymour Johnson, the classic answer of why do we do it this way is, well, that's the way we've always done it. You know, that's the easy button. You know, it's good enough for government work. So we'll just keep doing it that way. And I've found more often times than not that taking five minutes and critically thinking about that process or that interaction or that, you know, procedure usually lends itself to, I think we could probably do it a little bit better. Right. Yeah. And not stopping at asking why just the one time, but, you know, press the issue. You know, if you get an answer back of, well, that's the way that we've always done it, then ask again, why? Why is it the way that it's always been done that way? Because we've always done it that way doesn't necessarily mean that it's wrong. It might actually be right. But let's drill down to the source to find out the actual reason of why it's being done that way. Yeah, exactly. The just accepting that, well, it's because we've always done it is kind of the part that I just kind of question. I mean, like you said, yeah, maybe it is the right way to do it, but that's not a reason why we continue to do things. And the moving forward, I think all of us, especially officers in the Air Force, can start critically thinking about stuff that we do and how to innovate and make things better. All right. We owe it to our airmen and you know, the American people to continue to innovate and optimize and continuously improve all of our processes and the products and the services that we provide. That is part of our mandate as officers. That is part of our commission is to continuously improve on the things that we do. Yeah, absolutely. Other best practices that, that you've found from your time at the weapons school or now back at the squadron, things that we might be able to use as officers in the Air Force? So I've been kind of in the hot seat, if you will, as a weapons officer since December. So I really just focused on trying to get better and developing as a weapons officer. The biggest thing they don't teach you at weapons school is how to be a weapons officer. It turns <laughs> out when you graduate and you show up, it's on the job learning from day one. They don't have time to teach you how to do the day in and day out of your job. So for me, that's been a daily constant learning process of trying to consciously at the end of the day, think about my interactions, think about you know what I did that day and could I have done that a little bit better? Could I have done that different? Unfortunately, I'm learning on the fly of how to do this job, but I owe it to everybody to do it to the best of my ability. And that's just what I'm trying to professionally constantly kind of grow and learn as I'm doing the, uh, the patch gig. Yeah, it just sounds like you're conducting your own debrief at the end of the day. You're doing your own after action review. You're thinking about the flying that you did and the interactions that you had with the people around you. Maybe you weren't actually flying, but you were out there doing the thing. And then you come back at the end of the day, whether by yourself or with some other people at a bar or at home or whatever, and you review 
how everything went. And again, go through that same process, identify the error, prove it to yourself and find a way to provide new and additional instruction to help you improve upon those interactions. Yeah, exactly. And especially now being the weapons officer, I mean, we, you know, as a standard, we ask at the end of every flight or whatever, Hey, you know, what could I have done better? What do you got from me to the other crewmate? And now I always get, nah, I got nothing. You were great. And like, well, that's not helpful. <laughs> so if that's what I get, then I have to either ask again or, you know, I have to think about it myself and just kind of, you know, critically think about it and be my own critic. Yeah. Really good stuff here, Wham. I appreciate you taking the time to yeah, explain the weapons school, the weapons instructor course, and your experience as a weapons officer, what people could expect from their time pursuing the opportunity to go to the weapons school or what life will be like thereafter. If there is somebody who wants more information, wants to reach out to you directly, what would be the best way for them to get in touch with you? Uh, definitely by email. I mean, that's the easiest way. And I mean, part of our duty as a weapons officer is to help cultivate that next you know, generation of people that want to go. So my job is to talk to anybody and everybody about anything they want to know about the weapons school. And I'd be more than happy to do that. Okay. Yeah. Well, so we'll link your email in the show notes so that people can reach out to you there. Are you active anywhere else on social media, Instagram, or anything like that where people can follow you and see what you're up to? Yeah. So I've got the breadth of social media. So I get all my news from Twitter and then, yeah, I've got, uh, I've got an Instagram and uh, a Facebook as well. So probably just toss all that stuff into the, the show notes or ever as well. Uh, speaking of places that could benefit from a weapon school officer, I think you know, the Twitterverse could use a little bit of humility, approachability, and credibility. What do you think? Yeah, I'm not going to argue with that. <laughs> awesome. All right. Well, one more question for you, Am. What does it mean to be an officer? So I've listened to a couple episodes of your guys's and I'm not even going to try to compete with the answers that I've heard up to this point because they're way smarter and way better than uh, the one that I could give, but I'll put a different lens on it. And uh, at least for me and uh, kind of how I think of it from a tactical sense is it's somebody that everybody else wants to follow. It is the tactical officer that, you know, on night one, when the flag goes up, that's who is in charge. That's who's leading the formation. That's who's going to get the mission done and bring everybody home. And that's not just the best person in the jet. That's a day in and day out person that you want to follow is a good example. And, you know, they just lead by example. Yeah. And whether a weapon school graduate or not, every officer could benefit from being humble, approachable, incredible. Yeah, absolutely. Yep. Yeah. Like I said, I, try to think of those three words every day and try to apply those to whatever interactions I may have. And ideally that's for the better for not only for me, but for everybody else. Awesome. Well, thank you so much again for taking the time. It's been a great discussion, learned so much about the weapon school and I hope it has been a benefit to our audience as well. Thanks for having me. Uh, like I said, I listened to sliders episodes, the first episode I listened to the show and uh, I think what you guys are doing is really, really cool. I wish that, when I was applying to OTS, I had that CISO episode and would have, that would have saved me from saying what the hell's a WIZO to my recruiter when I got that phone call. So what you guys are doing is awesome. Uh, and I'm sure a lot of people really do appreciate it. Colin, that was a really good interview. I appreciated a lot his insights and perspectives 
definitely fulfills that vision of credible, approachable, humble that we expect from our weapons officers. Yeah, he is the epitome of that. You know, through the entire interview, I was impressed by how well he, I guess, wears the patch, you know, that that is his persona, but it, he's not like beating me over the head with it, you know, but, but he's able to exactly as you say, be humble, credible, approachable through everything that he does. Yeah. It's super important that they maintain those traits because they're going to be trusted with significant responsibilities. And that's kind of the first thing I wanted to talk about. You know, he talked about how the role of weapons officers is to train when they get back to their units. They're, you know, they're the most important cog in that wheel, if you will, of how to train. But also operationally, when it comes time to build and execute the war plan, they are the SMEs. They are the people that are consulted to do that. And I've seen that firsthand. When I deployed to the CAOC in 2014, we were directed by the White House that we were going to conduct strike operations in Syria. Never been done before. That was a deal. And I just happened to be next in line to kind of help build that plan. And so when I went in the room, you know, to have the big, okay, this is what we're going to do, brief session, you look around, 85% of the people in that room are wearing patches, are grads of the weapons school. And that's when it really hits you that these are the best of the best. These are the people that have trained and exercise at levels beyond what most airmen are going to have the opportunity to do. And there's a reason why they are the SMEs. They have been through the fire. They have been purified, if you will. And when that gauntlet comes, they're ready for it. And being able to, to be a fly on the wall and, and to play my little part in that was incredibly enlightening and absolutely gave me an appreciation for who they are and what they do and what they represent to the Air Force. Yeah. I don't have a lot of experience with patch wearers. Uh, my only association with one beyond this interview with, with Wham is that one of my previous commanders, now th this was interesting, he was a commander for Air Force ROTC for our detachment, but he was a patch wearer. And so when things were heating up with Korea a couple years back, he got quote unquote deployed to Hawaii to the air operations center that's there to provide his expertise as a A-10 weapons school grad and that colonel level experience for what was going on in Korea. He told us a little bit after he returned from his quote unquote deployment, and I am d saying that deliberately. Hey, if you're on CED orders, doesn't matter where it is. <laughs> Any anytime you spend in Hawaii is never a deployment. <laughs> hey, CED orders to Tampa equals deployment. <laughs> All about the money. <laughs> Even so, he was telling us about his experience there, and exactly as you're describing the the planning for Syria, the same thing was going on there at the AOC in Hawaii. Bunch of patchwares in the room having conversations about how things are going to go down in Korea if it has to go down. Yeah, no, it's like I said, I've seen it. And so as he describes that role, yeah, it, it's impressive 
these folks are genuinely the best of the best. And as it should be, they are the people who are training others. And that brings me to the thing that I want to discuss as well is the importance of integrating those patch wares, those representatives of the different parts and pieces of operations uh, from across the Air Force for these types of operations for you know, to meet the you know, the strategic objectives of our country, right? And I can appreciate that the vast majority of, of them, the 85% that you mentioned, are coming out of the one series. But I have to wonder, as a support guy, about those other 15%. Who's that? And could I potentially be one of them? Maybe not wearing a patch as much as I would like to, and I would love to go to, to the weapons school if ever given the opportunity, but that's not something that civil engineers do. But who are those other 15%? What, that, what does that look like? Yeah, no, I, and I think that's fair. And, and right, I was in that 15%. I am not a graduate of the weapons school. I chose other things for my career, but it was at least a choice I was able to make. Right. And I think that's a little at the heart of your question. Why is weapons school only available to certain career fields and, and not others? And I can see both sides of this one. It's so heavily focused on tactics, on the actual employment of the weapon system. But is there a way for other career fields to integrate, to receive training at that level so that when the time comes, because there, there were support guys and gals in the room. Because we need to know what is the status of aircraft? How many munitions do we have? All those things played a role in making these decisions. So yeah, those things all matter. And yeah, I was in the room as an Intel guy, non-patch person, but I was playing my role in supporting the planning and execution of that invasion. So yeah, I can understand. And like you, right, I came from a career field where going to weapons school was not even an option. It's a real thing. It's call it envy, call it jealousy, call it a desire to be part of the group. I mean, all those things matter in uh, the U.S. military. We talk about that all the time, being part of a tribe, uh, acceptance, all that stuff really matters. But, but yeah, I don't have that answer. But I do appreciate that, you know, Wan was able to kind of lay out just kind of how it is, how we do the family business and, and how it is. Well, I don't think it's so much that I, as a support officer, as a civil engineer, want to know exactly the tactics that fighters and bombers and the mobility aircraft, the ISR assets are all using in the execution of the air operation. I, I think that would be really interesting, but I think more what I would want to have is the skills that they gain from their time spent at the weapons school, especially with respect to critical thinking. I think that we as support officers would be able to offer quite a bit more to the Air Force and the Air Force as a whole would benefit if we were much better at doing the things that Wham described, such as asking the tough questions, challenging assumptions, and not just rolling over and accepting the status quo for what it is but being better positioned, better trained to push the Air Force in a direction of positive improvement. 
Yeah, I think that's a really good point. While it seems like a lot of that responsibility falls on the individual, we've talked about, you know, personal development a ton and that it you have to be deliberate, that you could be the model, the example as a leader, all those sorts of things. But yeah, having a, a structured way in which that happens and, you know, maybe that's what SOS is trying to do or ACST is trying to do, but certainly not to the degree that our weapons school is. Uh, certainly not. So yeah, I can see that. Well, and it, it, the big part of it is being surrounded by like-minded individuals and taking part in that culture of excellence and the all-important debrief. Yeah, we as support officers don't go and fly, then come back and spend the next three to four hours debriefing every last maneuver, communication, and finding all of those uh, perception, decision, and execution errors. But there are opportunities, you know, post-mortems of various projects or murder boarding our own presentations or that kind of stuff that we could really benefit from. Yeah, certainly. Yeah, totally agree with that. So those are the main things that I wanted to highlight out of this interview. And Wham did such a good job talking to the importance of that integration of the operations career fields to enable that strike package as well as the, the critical thinking aspect of it. Anything else that you wanted to bring up, Reed? Just one thing. I just appreciate that he recognizes how Intel runs the show and we're the most important people in the room, <laughs> right? That's, that's all I needed to hear. And just glad he recognizes. It. Seems like a good dude. Yes. <laughs> Thank you, Wham, for uh, providing. Stroking my ego. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I wasn't going to say it, but you did. Yep. I'll, I'll own it. <laughs> now, Wham is fantastic. Again, huge thanks to him for taking the time to share his expertise with us. If ever you, uh, our audience, have a chance to meet him or anybody else that is wearing a patch, take the time to, to go talk to them, get to know them, pick their brains about uh, all things Air Force because they are the SMEs in the room. 100%. Couldn't agree more. So yeah, big shout out to Wham. Thanks for joining us. And to you, our audience, thank you for listening to this week's episode. We're more than happy to engage with you on our social media uh, via our Gmail account. If you have episode suggestions, uh, we love hearing from you. And thanks for listening to this week's episode of Commission Ed. Thank you for listening to Commission Ed, the Air Force Officer Podcast. The views and opinions of the authors expressed herein do not state or reflect those of the government and shall not be used for advertising or product endorsement purposes. Mention of any specific commercial products, process, or service by trade name, trademark, manufacturer, or otherwise does not necessarily constitute nor imply its endorsement, recommendation, or favoring by the U.S. government. The mention of companies by name is solely for the purpose of discussion and should not be implied as endorsement.